Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we challenge the claim that cancel culture is an effective tool to prevent abuse. So welcome back to fucking cancelled. Welcome back to fucking cancelled. Thanks for being here. <laughs> <laughs> been a while, been a while. Um, so before we get into it, let's do some announcements. Um, so Jay and I are currently um in Nova Scotia, hanging out by the sea, mm-hmm. and we've actually been being quite productive, and I'm quite proud of us. It's true. So, we have a couple things to announce. One is that we finally put up the digital versions of our two zines, um, Refusing Accountability and Surviving Cancellation. Those are zines that are based off transcripts of previous episodes that have been edited for clarity, and also um, Jay has added some cool visual aids, little diagrams and stuff, which are actually quite useful. Yeah. Um, they help you to think through some of the concepts that we explain. And it's also just like a good resource to have on hand. So we made them into physical zines and those you can still get in physical form, but a bunch of people had asked us if we could make a digital version of that. So we have. Yep. So you can find those at fuckingcancel.bigcartel.com. Yeah, and again, just a reminder that all our transcripts are free online on the Patreon. Yeah, um, so if you just want to read an unedited transcript, you can get that for free on Yeah, Patreon. you can just go grab them for free, and you don't have to be a subscriber or anything. You no. can just go navigate to the uh, the episodes, and they're attached as PDFs to all the ones for which we've finished the transcripts. But, yeah. but if you want a fancier one that is edited and looks nice and has um, little diagrams... Yeah. And get can, the digital zines. You can grab it on our big cartel. Um, also, we have some new posts on our Patreon for people. Um, me and Clementine have been experimenting with uh, doing, like, speed writing mm-hmm. um, on various topics. Like, we think of, like, topics through our, like, everyday life and uh, throw them in a hat. Yeah. And, uh, Jay and I's and- life is basically, like, a real-life episode of Fucking Cancelled. <laughs> like... <laughs> Now you think that's true? <laughs> Basically. Like, our real-life conversations were often, like, if we were recording this, this would be an episode, you know? Yeah, um, And so we're always like, oh, like, we have such great conversations that literally we should be writing down what we're saying. So we, we took some time and did some writing. Um, and actually, one of them, so you can find them at patreon.com slash fucking canceled. One of them is actually what this episode today is based on, the one that I wrote, which is, um, we'll talk obviously lots more about it because it's what the episode is about today, but it's about basically challenging the claim that um, cancel culture is actually an effective tool to prevent abuse. Yeah, Um, like uh, we finished writing and we're like, actually both of these would be great episodes. Yeah, so we'll probably do Jay's one next. Yeah. Um, But, and yours was about... Um, I was about, like, the rights of the accused and mm-hmm. how that's kind of, like, an important concept in, like, legal theory and also just, like, generally Ethically. Not, not being evil, you yeah. know? And uh, how the entire, like, phenomenon of cancel culture obviously completely neglects that. Yeah. So yeah. you can read those on Patreon and also stay tuned because we'll probably do an episode based on the one that Jay wrote. 
Um, and then the other thing we wanted to say is that, so I think we talked about it possibly on a past episode, but we made a run of shirts um, with my line, fuck the police means we don't act like cops to each other. Mm-hmm. And they were extremely popular. Um, they almost totally sold out. We still have a couple extra larges left if people are interested, um, which is, again, fucking canceled.bigcartel.com. But we are going to do... People have been asking us if we're doing another run. We are going to do another run in September, probably. Don't quote us, but possibly, hopefully, September. Yeah. And people have been asking us to do larger sizes. So we looked into it, and we are able to do that. So stay tuned. We're going to have... Um, 2X and 3X. Is that what they're called? 2XL, 3XL? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't know, just like a reminder too that our uh, the t-shirts are oh, like, yeah. they're made in Canada and they're silkscreen by hand, uh, also in Canada. Um, yeah, we... So, and they're like non-sweatshop. And, yeah, we source them ethically, which is actually... Surprisingly rare. Yeah. When I first started doing... This is an aside, but I'm just going to go on an aside. When I first looked into printing shirts... I, like, didn't know anything about it, and I, like, asked some people who I knew locally who printed shirts, and they gave me the information, and I just, like, assumed that because these people were, like, lefty people, that, like, the shirts that they were recommending were going to be, like, ethically ethically made shirts. Yeah. And so the first small batch that I got when I did fucking magic shirts, I got them, and I looked at the tag, and they were made in Bangladesh, and I was, like, really uncomfortable with that, and then I, like, was, like, wait a second, and I, like, went through my closet and looked at all my, like, like punk, punk shirts, anarchist so, yeah. shirts that I have, and looked at the tags, and they're all made in Southeast Asia. In yeah, in places without a lot of labor protection. So anyway, we really think that um, to the best of our ability, socialists should be if we are making things, trying to produce them with as much good labor conditions as possible. So that's why we source our shirts from Canada, where there's some labor laws. Yeah, and it also means that that's another reason why there isn't just, like, an infinite supply of them. Like yeah, we're, exactly. We do run. Small, they're, like, pretty, small batches. They're pretty expensive to produce and everything, so, yeah, we don't we don't have just, like, an infinite supply of capital. Yeah. so stay tuned. We will announce when the next batch is up. Yeah, and without further ado... Let's get into it. Yeah. So, this episode is actually inspired by a lot of ranting <laughs> that I have been doing personally. Content's been mad. I've been mad. I've been really mad. And so, basically, what I'm mad about is people keep calling me an abuse apologist. It's something that people say about me a lot. Like, constantly. And it really makes me mad, because I'm very obviously not an abuse apologist. I very obviously... Not only am personally a survivor of, like, a huge amount of abuse and, like, very serious abuse, but also, like, my whole thing is about trauma and trauma recovery and also about opposing abuse, you know? So it's really been irritating me. Um, And then one of the things that I was thinking about is just that, like, pro-cancel culture people, and very often they don't call themselves that, obviously. They say that they're pro-accountability. Um... (laughs) But they basically just make the claim that being pro-cancel culture or being pro-accountability spectacles is inherently, like, pro-survivor, anti-abuse, and in line with the project of, like, opposing abuse generally and, like, getting getting rid of abuse and, like, helping survivors heal, etc. And not only that, but they take up all of the space in that conversation, um... While also like actively and very intensely trying to sort of like eject anyone else from that from that conversational space who yeah. differs from their like wacky beliefs. And if you 
yeah, if you challenge them, like, you're called an abuse apologist. And you're called, you know, you're accused of not caring about abuse simply because you are challenging um, their argument that cancel culture is an effective tool for... um, for challenging abuse. And this really irritates me for a number of reasons. One is that they actually don't make any kind of coherent argument as to why and how they think that cancel culture will prevent abuse. How they think that these harassment campaigns will effectively lead to less abuse. And it kind of, they kind of act like it goes without saying. And like, it's obvious that this is, this is how you take abuse seriously. And this is, um, how you effectively challenge abuse. But to me, I think it's absolutely ridiculous, and we're going to get into that a lot in this episode. Yeah, they do a lot of hand-waving about it, and it's like, yo, show your work. You yeah, know? like, actually make an argument. Explain how it is that you think that this is effective and why it's effective and how it works. They um, also, yeah, they obviously also don't acknowledge all the ways in which cancel culture perpetuates abuse and is itself abusive. Like, yeah. they would never acknowledge that. Totally. Um, even though it's pretty evident to many people. Yeah. And even though... Yeah. Like, we get called abuse apologists for pointing out their abusive behavior. Yeah. I'm like, who is the abuse apologist in that situation? Yeah. Um, and then they don't offer any actual solid advice for what we should be doing about abuse, you know? And that's actually something that I wish we were having so many more conversations about. And we've talked a bit about it on the pod in episode six, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's something that we need to be having a lot of conversations about. We need to be having real conversations and specific conversations about how to build strategies for abuse prevention and intervention and for supporting survivors in the aftermath of trauma. And if cancel culture is just sucking up all the air in the room, we actually don't have the space to have those conversations. Yeah. Um, and I mean, furthermore, they very, very often claim the space of, like, being a survivor or use that that identity as a way to, like, bolster their arguments or their non-arguments um, while, sorry to be spicy, not actually being survivors of anything, you know? This is really common. Obviously, like, some people in that camp, like, ha- actually have survived, like, very dark shit, you know? It's very possible. Definitely always a possibility of that. Um, but many, many people who weaponize that identity, like... Um, the the things that they say they survived are, like, conflicts. Yeah, and I'm going to get much more into it in a second, but, yeah, basically, you know, when I I wrote the article, which is on my substack, and it's also in Fuck the Police Means We Don't Act Like Cops to Each Other, number one, that's that's called, I called my ex abusive when they weren't, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. In that, I was very, very generous, and I explored the possibility that, you know, people with prior trauma, people who are survivors from you know, childhood neglect or childhood abuse often have such extreme nervous system reactions to conflict that they can perceive things to be abusive that aren't or come to understand things to be abusive that aren't, right? And I do think, I still stand by that. I think that that's really common and really true. Um, But not everyone who is claiming the space of being a survivor is actually a survivor of child abuse or of something fucked up happening in their past. Absolutely not, yeah. And a lot of these people who are loudly, loudly calling me an abuse apologist and claiming the space of being a survivor, if you actually look at their claims, you know, which they're usually very vague and they're not very specific about what their claims are, but if you actually, like, read into the call-outs and, like, what is actually being said, Mm -hmm. it's like you're not describing abuse. So what are you a survivor of? Yeah. So, whatever. That, saying that, I was, like, actually afraid to say that for so long because it's so spicy. Yeah. Um, And I knew that people were going to get really mad at me. But I've been ranting and raving at Jay for, like, maybe a week now about this. Um, And 
I wrote an article on my Substack about this topic. It's separate from the one that this episode is based on, but is exploring kind of like the context of all this stuff that we were just talking about and what we're going to be talking about through the rest of the episode. So this is unusual. We've never done it on the podcast before, but I thought that it would be cool to actually just read the article that I wrote for you guys on the podcast. You can also find it at clementinemorian.substack.com, but honestly, this article is like, I really felt like it was the spiciest thing I've ever written. Um, and also it was something that I was like really afraid to say, but also feel very strongly about. Yeah. I mean, it's fucking real though. You know, it's like anyone can talk about abuse. Anyone can talk about, you know, um, techniques for preventing abuse, whatever. Like you don't need to be a survivor of anything to talk about that. But if you're going to leverage, um, your, your identity as a survivor to like shut down everyone else's voice in the conversation and to, you know, make it so that everything you're saying has to be, you know, treated as, as though it's sacrosanct, then it's worth looking into these, these claims, you know? And, and it's like, just, yeah, unfortunately, like a lot of people, um, trying to leverage that identity like don't have a valid claim to it and that's very offensive frankly yeah and it's also like it's very obvious whatever we're going to get into it a lot more but it's very obvious from the way that they are approaching all of this that they actually are not survivors of domestic violence you know um and so anyway let me just get into it yeah read your article okay so this article is called i'm tired of being called an abuse apologist by people who are literally stalking their exes spicy title. (laughs) I'm fed up. I'm exhausted. I am tired of tiptoeing around this topic, choosing my words extremely carefully, and treating it like it's this very delicate thing. I get that it's a loaded topic. I get that the stakes are high. But it can't be something we aren't allowed to talk about with any specificity or detail. It can't be something we remain forever vague and general about, while leveraging huge social power to dominate and control people in the name of safety. I'm talking about abuse, interpersonal abuse, or as they used to call it, domestic violence. Very often, cancel culture, a social phenomenon in which accused people are marked, dehumanized, harassed, and driven from community, and everyone who chooses to remain in their life receives similar consequences, is justified in the name of survivors. If we take abuse seriously, we must believe in accountability, which is really just a nice way to say cancel culture. Accountability, like abuse, is never really defined. It's vague and nebulous and stands in for concepts like prevention, intervention, repair, and justice. In practice, this just means that the accused person has to do whatever they are told and give up any claim to personal autonomy. This situation of total domination, in which to be accountable means to submit, is obviously an abusive situation that can be and is used in all sorts of fucked up ways. But to suggest that this use of power be looked at critically or questioned in any way is framed as abuse apologism. The abuse being referred to here, like the accountability addressing it, is vague and nebulous. You're not allowed to ask questions about it or look at it directly. Asks for details or clarity are framed as not believing the survivor, which in itself is defined as abuse apologism. So we are left with a situation where anyone can claim to be abused, be totally unspecific about what they mean by that, and the accused person is then labeled an abuser, which often morphs easily on the internet grapevine into predator or rapist, while no actual accusation has been made. And look, I get it. 
Unlike many of the people repeating over and over that survivors are not believed, I have been on the stand, interrogated by a defense attorney who said all sorts of insulting and insane things to me, who asked me very specific questions like what I was wearing, who suggested that I was lying to get back at my ex, in front of a jury who did find my ex not guilty. Unlike many of the people calling me an abuse apologist for wanting clear and straightforward ways to talk about abuse and an opportunity for the accused to defend themselves, I was regularly sexually assaulted by a family member when I was a child and had the people in my family yell at me for acting like anything wrong was taking place. I know, in the most intimate ways it can be known, that abuse is very often dismissed and survivors are very often not believed. I know, more intimately than I care to know, the visceral experience of powerlessness when you are being abused and dominated and everyone around you is acting like it's fine. It is precisely because I know these things that I insist we talk about abuse with clarity and specificity and that we question any system or culture that grants people the power to dominate and control other people. If we take abuse seriously and we admit that it's common, then how on earth do we assume that a system of total domination and social exile with no questions asked will not be used by those who want to dominate and control someone, especially, for example, an ex-partner who is moving on with their life? It is cited as a sacred article of faith that people don't lie about abuse, referencing some study never named that found that only 2% of rape accusations presumably made to the police are false. But this statistic is not talking about a time period in which the word abuse has been totally hollowed out and stripped of any specific meaning. And it is not talking about a context in which accusations are made to the internet, not the police. I have written about it before, but it is worth repeating that it is very possible to feel so bad that you don't feel like you're lying when you say you were abused. And if you live in a culture that encourages and rewards identifying with victimization, that teaches you that your partner must meet all your needs and make you feel good, and if they can't or don't or don't want to anymore, they are toxic at best or even emotionally abusive, then it's easy to see why so many people are calling their exes abusive without actually alleging anything that constitutes abuse. Whenever I talk about abuse being something specific, behavior that is physically or sexually violent, dominating, controlling, degrading, humiliating, or violating, people always say, what about emotional abuse? And I have to ask these people to be more specific. And many of them get angry that I ask them to be more specific. Not all abuse is physical, that's true, but that doesn't mean that anything that hurts you or doesn't meet your needs is abuse. When my ex-partner told me I'm a disgusting slut who no one will ever love, that's emotional abuse. When my ex-partner stole my keys and my phone, that's emotional abuse. When my ex-partner insisted I keep the house spotless and exploded at me when I didn't, that's emotional abuse. But I had another partner at another time in my life who I was very unhappy with, who scrolled their phone while we were at dinner and flirted with other people online when we were monogamous and largely left me feeling sad and unwanted, and that, as much as it sucks, is not emotional abuse or abuse of any kind. I am tired of tiptoeing around this, and so I'm just going to come out and say it. The conversation on abuse prevention and supporting survivors is being dominated by people who are not survivors because the situations they are alluding to are not abusive. I have read entire callouts that loudly proclaim a person is an abuser who must be outed for community safety and then go on to list things which are clearly conflicts, mismatched needs, and hurt feelings. I have watched people be humiliated, slandered, isolated, controlled, and robbed of everything meaningful in their life when what they are being accused of is not abuse, and what is happening to them is. Because the term abuse has become meaningless, and because you are not allowed to ask questions, 
about accountability, no one stops to ask if the battle cry of the pro-cancel culture people, that accountability spectacles are necessary tools to end abuse, makes any sense at all. If a person is ritually humiliated on the internet, robbed of their community, their passions, their job prospects, their hope for the future, if they submit to the demands or simply try to get away from their accusers, if they endure all of this and don't do anything threatening or dangerous, can we say that they are dangerous? Does it make sense to say that what we are doing is for community safety when the target isn't even acting in any kind of threatening way? Because I'll tell you what, my ex-partner broke into my house. He physically assaulted me. He put my body through a wall. If I made a website calling him out as an abuser, it's very likely that he would have killed me because he is actually dangerous and dangerous people do dangerous things when people try to humiliate, dominate, and control them. No domestic violence agency would ever suggest to a survivor that she put her abuser on blast on the internet and that doing so would create safety. The idea is laughable. And the fact that these people keep insisting that call-outs are to create safety clearly shows that they aren't actually talking about dangerous situations. I am tired. I am tired of being called an abuse apologist when I am a survivor and I have no illusions about what abuse is and how it works. I am especially tired of being spoken over about safety and believing survivors by people who are not survivors, who are appropriating the trauma of survivors and the seriousness of what we have lived to justify their own transparently abusive behavior. You're not a survivor because your ex-partner was emotionally distant or didn't want the same things as you. You are not justified in controlling your ex-partner and trying to prevent them from dating other people in the name of safety. And you can't take the very real trauma of abuse and the very real struggle for survivor safety and twist it to your own ends. It's insulting and it's fucking wrong. The work of creating a culture with less abuse, of supporting survivors in escaping abuse and recovering from trauma, of building skills for intervening on and de-escalating violence in real time, of helping people who have been abusive transform their behaviors, all of this work has a long way to go. We actually do need to be doing so much more for survivors and so much more to end abuse. But this work has been massively derailed by cancel culture. Now we have an abusive culture which is literally creating a new type of stalking and domestic violence, masquerading as the movement to support survivors and end abuse. Specific situations require specific responses. If we want to transform abuse, we need to be clear on what we are talking about so we can address it in a specific and appropriate way. A situation of physical abuse and stalking requires a different response from a situation where someone is not practicing good consent skills, which requires a different response from a situation where a couple is just unhappy and should probably break up. And I have a lot to say on that. I would love for us to be having robust, complex conversations on how we as a society and in our communities can do more to end abuse. If only people could have those conversations instead of simply insisting on a state of permanent submission and exile for the accused. If only we could talk clearly, specifically, honestly, and sincerely about abuse without being called abuse apologists. Here come the accusations. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> so thank you for listening to my article. It's a really good article. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad you read it. Yeah. Somebody needs to fucking say it, man. Yeah. I really felt like I got a huge weight off my chest by saying that. I really feel like... It needed to be said, and I, even though I say so many controversial things on the internet all the time, this is something that is, like, you're really not allowed to say, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I get it, like, as I explained in the article, like, I really do understand why, like, taking abuse really seriously, like, matters, and why, um, you know, if you are a survivor, having people challenge that experience can be, like, really stressful and painful, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But we can't use the emotional weight of that 
to just not let us have any conversations about this or talk about it with any specificity ever. It's not helping anybody. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, yeah, and as you pointed out, you know, the same people who are doing this are constantly saying that can- cancel culture is the only way to actually do anything about abuse. So, yeah, yeah I mean, that's what the, the bulk of this episode is going to be about. Yeah, we're going to talk about, we're going to actually, like, first try to um, express what we think their argument is. Yeah. Even though they don't really... They don't tend to make it very clearly. They don't tend to make it very clear, but they kind of imply it here and there, like what their reasoning is. So we're going to try to pull those arguments out, and then we're going to basically debate them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, more or less. Um, Yeah, so basically, um, cancel culture apologists, if you could call them that, um, think that cancel culture does two main things um, in terms of preventing abuse. One, um, it functions as a way to like bar people from certain like spaces or areas or communities um as well as warn others about them um so that way i guess they believe that you know people who are potential victims could be kept like away from potential abusers right yeah um and secondarily they think that uh cancel culture can function as a form of punishment or as they usually would put it uh, a type of consequences um, and that this uh, theoretically would serve as a deterrent. Yeah. Um, or would constitute justice in some way. Yeah. I really think those are the two main arguments that underlie the assumption that cancel culture or accountability spectacles is a way to prevent abuse. Yeah. And it's basically like a sort of safer space thing about like making community spaces safer and also making sure that everyone has information about people's past abusive behaviors if or the accusations against them. Yeah. Um, and making sure that everybody knows that they could get brutally canceled if they yeah, are bad. Yeah, and that's the second one, is, like, prevention yeah. through basically threatening people that, like, it's going to be really bad for you if, if you do something abusive. Yeah. So we're going to challenge those and talk about, like, the shortcomings of these strategies for preventing abuse and then even go further to suggest that not only are these weak strategies for preventing abuse, but they actually have within them um, things that I actually think have the opposite effect that we want, that they actually contribute to a culture of more abuse. Um, So we're going to unpack that. For the purposes of this episode, we are going to be assuming that the situations that we're talking about are actually situations of actual abuse. And the reason for this is because we want to have a conversation about whether or not cancel culture is an effective strategy for preventing real abuse. Real abuse. Yeah. And so a lot of the times on this podcast, we talk about how a lot of accusations in cancel culture are false and there's a lot of overstated harm, et cetera, et cetera. We talk about that a lot. Um, for this episode, like we're talking about situations where someone has actually, actually has something. been abusive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. So right off the bat, the idea of barring people from spaces or communities or whatever, like, does that actually work? Yeah. And so like the first thing that I always want to say about this, and that I really think people have a hard time wrapping their minds around, is that basically there are only two ways to make someone go away from other people permanently. Yeah. One is death, 
Mm-hmm. And the other is um, solitary confinement. Yeah. And I really want people to, like, let that sink in. Because those literally are the only ways to prevent someone from ever being around other human beings. Yeah. And those things are wrong. Like, <laughs> it's wrong to kill people, and it's wrong to put people in solitary confinement. Yeah. These are human rights atrocities. Like, they are things that we oppose, that, yeah. that I think most people oppose, you know? Or at least anyone claiming anyway. to be on the left would oppose, yeah. you know? Um, and so we really need to look at that and be like, if we don't want people, you know, to ever have the opportunity to be around someone else again because they might abuse them, then that would literally mean either killing them or putting them in solitary confinement. Because no matter what, people are social animals, we're social creatures, we're always going to be around other people. Our lives depend on other people, we're going to seek out relationships. And even in the context of jail and incarceration, like, because... The logic of jail and incarceration is you put people in jail so that they can't abuse other people. But they abuse other people in jail. Very often. It's just like, well, of course, not every single person does, but there's a huge amount of abuse going on in jail, jail, right? So it's like these strategies of, of incarceration or of like exile and banishment are about being like, don't abuse these people. Don't abuse this group of people. Because unless you're planning on putting someone in solitary confinement or literally killing them, if you send them away, they go somewhere else. Yeah. And we were talking about this the other day. Like, I remember when I was, like, in my early 20s and I was way more kind of, like, on board with with call-outs and stuff like that, you know. Um, Even then, like, I remember having conversations with my friends and stuff where it was very much like, you know, we were like, yeah, you can't just send someone away forever because, like, there's other people in the place where they go, you know. So, like, exiling people is not transformative justice, you know? Mm. Yeah, and I do think that people have basically just forgotten this phenomenon. Like, it's like people just, like, act as though now, a lot of people act as though, like, if you cancel someone and you are able to sort of isolate them from everyone they know, then everyone is going to be safe. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I Also, I mean, another thing that we were talking about the other day um, was that, like, I honestly feel like there's this, like, mechanism of dehumanization. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this before on the pod. Like, there's a mechanism of dehumanization that is used constantly um, in in the nexus um, and in cancel culture that makes it so that we don't think about these people as, like, full and three-dimensional human beings with, like, lives and, like, a past and a future and, and, like, social needs, you know what I mean? And so we just think of them as sort of, like, a face on, like, a wanted poster or something. Or, like, a weed that can be pulled out. Yeah, exactly. But it's, like, that person, like, when you do all this shit, to them, that person is still there yeah, somewhere. You know what somewhere. I mean? They're like in their apartment, yeah. like making breakfast. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like they they want to have friends and they want to have like a community and people to be around them because everyone wants that yeah. and they will. Every single person will always seek that out. Of course. Um. Yeah. And so like even if you manage to like you know um um get someone to like leave town yeah. and go move to Winnipeg or something, you know what I mean? Like then they're just in Winnipeg. Yeah. And the thing is, is that what's so crazy about this is that cancel culture knows this because cancel culture follows them there. Right. right? Like when people drive people out of their community because of the internet and the way that the internet is so international, like there are many cancel campaigns that I know about from people, canceled people who I know who literally did move cities or even countries And, like, very often, you know, if they move to any kind of place with a nexus kind of scene going on there, people will try to 
put them on blast in the local community where they move to, to like ostensibly drive them out of that community. So then where do you go? Like, do you want them to just keep bouncing around from place to place? Like eventually they have to live somewhere and wherever they live, they're going to have to have relationships and go places. That's just reality. So it really doesn't make sense. It's like not logical. And I don't really know. You can't get them away from people permanently. Yeah. And I also want to point out that like, again, if we're talking about people who've committed, like, real abuse, right? Like, domestic violence and, like, like rape and so on, you mm-hmm. know? These are people, you know, who, like, presumably have demonstrated that they have, like, the, the ability and sometimes the will, right? To, like, hurt other people, like, really badly and, like, take advantage of them and mm-hmm. so on, you know? And if they're, you know, going to sort of, like, perpetually be pushed out of um, of, like, spaces where people you know, have some ability to, like, stand up for themselves and, like, determine, like, what right. what a healthy relationship is and so on, then eventually they're going to end up where? Like, in the fucking, you know, basically in the gutters of society, yeah. right? And, like, sleeping in shelters yeah. and whatever around people who are, like, even more vulnerable. Yeah, this is something we were talking about the other day, and I think it's, like, a really important point because it's, like, in fact, and I've written about this before, and it's controversial, but we are encouraged to think that especially women... Um, but maybe also queer people are just like at this like inherent and static risk of sexual violence in all, like we all have the exact same risk of sexual violence Mm. and it's not true, you know, like we all could experience sexual violence, but there is a correlation between specific risk factors and like how often sexual and domestic violence happen in people's lives, right? People who are at higher risk and those people tend to be people who have childhood trauma and or substance use stuff and or poverty, and or being street involved, you know? Those are the people who are at the highest risk of having very intense and repetitive traumas happening to them, Um, not like university queers, you know? University queers do get abused, and that does happen, but it is not like a fundamental fact of life the way that it is for people who are in the gutters of society. And so when we keep deriving people who have been abusive out of, you know, their jobs, their homes their resources and we keep isolating them and pushing them further and further away from our you know upwardly mobile lefty nexus communities where do they go right and like i guess best case scenario you land them on the street but then you basically have put them in a position of like literally access to the most vulnerable and easily victimized population population. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly so, basically, long story short, like, explain how <laughs> this would ever keep anyone safe. <laughs> yeah. Like, it might, in, in theory, it might keep, like, your friends safe, yeah. I suppose. But, like, you know, your friends are not the only people in the world. Yeah. And so, yeah. Like, and I want to be, you know, generous and, and not, like, what do you call it? Like, iron manning them or whatever? Yeah, or steel manning. Steel manning yeah. them. Basically not straw manning. So, like, sure, it's true. If you If you bar someone from a space, like, they can't abuse anyone in that space because they're not there. So... Correct. But beyond that, they are somewhere else. Yeah. And if they are an abusive person, they're probably abusing someone like someone else somewhere else. Unless and until we actually help them yeah. figure out how to change the behavior, which yeah. we're gonna get into more later. Yeah. So the next um piece of this is warning people. So part of the accountability spectacle cancel culture framework is that it's very important, like, accusations are very, very important, and it's very important for people to know if someone has been 
abusive in the past. It's very important for that information to be shared incredibly widely and for every person who comes in contact with that person to know that they have been abusive in the past. This is like an article of faith in um, cancel culture, in the nexus, that people really take for granted as like obviously and transparently true. And I've gotten into arguments with people about it because they're like, basically they're like, well, what if they get abused by that person and they didn't know that that person had been abusive before? So like you're basically robbing them of having, you know, information that they need to make a decision about their own safety. So that's the argument. Mm -hmm. But I want to kind of complicate it and I want people to think about it carefully. Okay. I remember reading, um, this is a bit of an aside, but I remember reading, I think it's in the book, Learning Good Consent. Okay. And it actually, like, even, this was even when I was in the Nexus. Like, this actually horrified me, but it's literally considered to be so completely, like, standard in cancel culture logic. That if you have assaulted someone in the past, that you are now responsible to disclose that to every single future sexual partner that you have. Mm-hmm. And that failure to do so actually constitutes a new assault. Right. I find that to be completely bonkers. It's super normal. People, a lot of people think that. A lot of people think that. I strongly do not agree with that. I strongly do not agree with that. It's not an assault because we are not actually privy to all the information about a person's past life when we have sex with them. And then withholding some kind of information about their past does not actually make that a non-consensual thing if it was a consensual thing, right? So that is just, I think that defining assault that way is very questionable and is like a very slippery slope you know like what else do i have to like disclose to all my sexual partners you know um do they need to know about my sexual history do they need to know about yeah like all of this right and like so it's a slippery slope secondly i'm just like it is that is daunting man like that is absolutely daunting to put on someone that they need to disclose that in the past they did that you know it's it's like literally a very stressful thing it's not appealing at all and i can understand why someone wouldn't want to do that because you know it's extremely stressful it's like not very hot they don't know if they can trust this person necessarily because it's like a new sexual encounter it's vulnerable information that can be used against them in a major way um, Realistically, it bars them from ever having sex again. Basically. I mean, there, but the thing is, is that there might be people, and I want to get into this, there might be people who are like, that's fine. And actually, I think that the people who are more likely to be like, that's fine, are people who are... Very easy to abuse. Very easy to abuse yeah. and more likely, like, they're part of more of the vulnerable populations that we were talking about. Yeah. So, whatever. Like, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. But what I want to unpack here is that... Let's just look at the at the idea that having information about someone's past gives you accurate information about someone's future behavior. Mm-hmm. Because I'm trying to iron man them or steel man them, I'm not going to say that it's totally meaningless information, right? Right. Somebody having done something in the past, it could have some impact that maybe they're more likely to do it in the future. But it's definitely not in any way a guarantee that yeah. they're going to do it in the future. Yeah. Because people do change. They change in massive ways. And, like, I really feel this way because being, like, an alcoholic in recovery, I can only imagine how insane it would be if I had to tell every new person that I met about the really insane and crazy behaviors that I used to do when I was drinking. There's no likelihood of me doing those behaviors right now because I'm literally sober and have, like, 10 years of therapy and I don't act like that at all anymore. So me telling these people that is just, like, bizarre. Like, why would I be, like, I used to scream at strangers on the street. I really need you to know that. 
so that you're prepared in case I, like, randomly start screaming at you on the street. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to scream at you on the street. Yeah. I don't do that anymore. I haven't for years and years. Yeah, you know? totally. So, like, people can change. And the other thing is that it, they can change the other way. So, like, just because a person does not have any accusations against them does not mean that they're not going to abuse you. Yep. Right? And I think that it creates, like, a false sense of safety that we can depend on these warnings and these accusations because, oh, I heard that this person abused their ex, so I'm not going to touch it. Meanwhile, that person might be someone who's in deep therapy because they had this abusive behavior in their past. They, like, went to a 12-step program. They got sober. They're in therapy. They haven't had any behaviors like that in years and years. And they're actually, like, a very trustworthy and solid person. Somebody else, you don't hear any accusations about, so you're like, I guess they're fine and they're safe. But meanwhile, maybe they're going to assault you. Yeah, and I feel like this line of reasoning rests on um, a strong essentialist streak in the nexus. Yeah, that, exactly. Because like, a lot of people in the nexus will straight up say that people don't change. Like, yeah. They're like, this is like a, it's like it's, it's, an art, it's an article of faith for a lot of people, yeah. you know, that bad people are bad people, basically, and good people are good yeah. people, um, and that people don't change. And, and, and I mean, often if you actually challenge them on this, they'll be like, well, there's no bad people and no good people, whatever. But like, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, there's abusers though, you yeah. know, and they definitely think that abusers is like a valid category of, totally. of human. And they think that abusers don't change, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, I don't know. Anyone who's, yeah, I mean, obviously we use 12-step groups as our example all the time, but anyone who's been around 12-step 12 12-step 12 groups has seen dozens or hundreds of people who would easily be categorized as abusive by any like of stretch of the ima- imagination, um, completely change themselves and become like very trustworthy people, you know? Yeah, who do tons of good in the world. Yeah, and start like men's groups and like whatever, you know, yeah. like do all this shit to make sure that they're not acting like that anymore, yeah. you know? And to help other people not act like that. Yeah. Yeah, so... It really doesn't make any sense, and I really agree with you about the essentialism thing. Like, I think it is this very, like, lazy and maybe desperate attempt at safety, to be generous, to be like, it's a type of person that abuses and that that's just a part of who they are, and so we just have to avoid those people, you know? Um, And so, also, what that does is it actually takes the conversation away from what would actually be helpful. And what would actually be helpful would be having conversations about, like, discernment. Like, how do you know? Like, what are the red flags, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And some people have a better idea about what the red flags are for abuse than others. Because, like I was saying, there's people that are at higher risk of being abused, and those people tend to be people who are abused in their childhood. So, you know, I've made posts online on my Instagram being like, you know, it is never okay for your partner to call you ugly. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, there are some people who are like, oh my God, about that because right. they did not get a standard of like knowing that being degraded or insulted by your partner is never acceptable and is a huge red flag for escalating violence, right. you know? Right. Um, and so, and there's other more subtle things as well, you know, like controlling behaviors, um, any kind of humiliation, degradation, whatever. We could do a whole episode on this, but actually spending time teaching people to look at their relationships and how they're being treated and actually notice um, both red and green flags Mm -hmm. for if a person is giving red flags for potentially being abusive or they're giving really good green flags for being very trustworthy. And, like, how do we discern those things, right? Yeah, totally. And, I mean, I think, like, this is a little bit of an aside, too, but, like, I think that at this point it's worth pointing out that there are, like, lists of red flags and stuff out there on the Internet that are, like, so insane, you know. Totally, that, they're that, insane. That talk about things that are like not fucking abuse, like yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. And so. actually encourage abusive behavior. 
I feel like we could do an entire episode on this and I don't want to get into it very much right now, but one of the red flags that I just mentioned for abusive behavior is controlling behavior and jealous behavior, right? right? And not all jealousy and not all controlling behavior has to lead to abusive behavior, Mm -hmm. but like it's a big red flag of going that way and a lot of those lists that are like about sort of like red flags Mm -hmm. are totally written from the perspective of a controlling Jealous partner. Yeah. An anxious, preoccupied partner. Right. And um, it's concerning. Yeah. So whatever. That's a future episode maybe. But, um, yeah, for sure. But yeah, we need real information about what to look for. Yeah. And so the upshot of all this is that um, everything we've just talked about can only really ever create... Um, like, if, if we do accept that it can create some sort of safety sometimes, you know, for some people, we also have to accept that it can only create, like, situational and limited forms of safety. Like, for, for example, the people who have heard the warning and um, uh, only in the case where that warning is, like, accurate and is going to accurately reflect the future yeah. behavior of that person. And, like, you know, people are only safe in spaces that that person has been barred from. And, yeah. like, scenes are only safe from that person if that person, you know, is no longer in that scene. But, like, obviously, yeah, like we said, that person can move. Um, and, you know, a warning is not necessarily actually accurate information about anybody. Yeah, so it's actually, like, it's it's pretty weak, you know? And, like, I'm not saying, you know, that it never has prevented an assault, you know? Banning someone or warning someone, sure. But, like, it's, it's a very, like, porous strategy. Does that word make sense there? I'll say yes. <laughs> like, it has it, a lot of holes in it? It has a lot of holes in it. <laughs> it really doesn't cover a lot of ground. Like, there's so many ways that it can, um, like, punish people who are not being abusive and prevent them from having a life while also not giving us any information about people who might be abusive. Yes? Yeah, and I want to say one more thing about this. Like, you know, I, I, I want to say, like, we're not we're not saying, for example, that, like, let's say, like, somebody um, goes to a specific bar and, like, gets in a fight and sort of, like, you know, breaks, like, a pool cue over somebody's head yeah. or something, you know? And that guy is then barred from that bar, yeah. you know? The people who run the bar are like, you can't come back to this bar because yeah. you fucking broke a pool cue on somebody's head, you know? We're not saying that that is, like... A, a bad idea or like a terrible yeah. thing it's like dude if you like you know if you do something fucking ridiculous and and like dangerous somewhere like it might make sense that that place would ban you from it's there, what we know? call situational consequences which yeah. we talked about in episode six that's consequences and that's fine you know um but what i think that cancel culture pretends to do is to say well actually basically we're gonna get in, we're gonna get that guy barred from everywhere, yeah. you know, but, and so they're trying to take it to like a much more sort of like universal level, but yeah. it's like, you clearly don't have the ability to actually do that, you know, yeah. um, you can, you can make sure that that person is like unwelcome at like a certain like range of places and yeah. make it like very painful because that person loses all their, you know, community or whatever, but yeah. you can never bar them from every bar. They're, they're literally always going to be going somewhere else. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, so that is that, that is our That is our takedown of those ideas. The next set of ideas that we wanted to challenge respectfully is the idea that cancel culture acts as a deterrent to abuse because it is a form of consequences or punishment. So before we get into this, I just want to, you just touched on it, but I want to quickly revisit the distinction between consequences and punishment as I think the words are actually mean Mm -hmm. and also how we use them. Yeah. Um, which is that basically a consequence can be like a natural result of a behavior, mm-hmm. right? So like you just said, if you break a pool cue over someone's head in a specific bar, it makes sense that maybe you're not welcome back in that bar, yeah. right? Um, if you break someone's trust, 
that person might not want to be in a relationship with you, yeah. right? These are consequences, which are basically boundaries. They are boundaries that people or spaces choose to have about a specific behavior that happened. Um, sometimes they can change, you know? It's like maybe if you demonstrate that you've changed, the, the person might shift their boundary. But these consequences are, are fine, and we're not saying that there's anything wrong with them. Mm-hmm. You are allowed to end a relationship with someone for any reason, mm-hmm. including because they didn't treat you right. You can decide you want to go no contact with your family, with your ex, whatever. Right. That's all fine. Right. It's also fine for like a, you know, like a... A space to be like, you know, this person when in the space acted really fucked up and we don't want them here unless or until they can like demonstrate that they changed their behavior. Those are situational, context specific, relationship specific consequences. Punishment is different. Punishment is the idea that you did something bad. Now you're not allowed to have nice things. Yeah. Or you did something bad. So now we can do something bad to you. Yeah. We're going to take something away from you. You should hurt because you caused hurt. Yeah. Um, and so that is things like, you know, instead of it being like you broke a pool cue over this guy's head so you're banned from this bar because the bar doesn't trust you anymore. People who work there don't trust you, so they're banning you. That would be a, a situational consequence. Punishment would be you're never allowed to go to any bars ever again. Yeah. You're not allowed to be in a band. Your all your friends are going to get harassed. The Montreal Anarchist, Anarchist Book Fair has banned you. You're not allowed to table at the book fair, etc. <laughs> right? You're not allowed to have any nice things in your life. That's punishment. And so we have made this distinction a lot more clearly in episode six. If you want to hear us go on about it at more length, you can listen to episode six. But I wanted to make that distinction. But for the rest of the episode, the distinction doesn't really matter because... The way that pro-cancel culture people use the words is interchangeably. Yeah, pretty much. When they say consequences, they mean punishment. Yeah. And, and actually, they'll usually deny that yes. they are into punishment while actually being into punishment. Yeah. <laughs> totally. They just call it consequences. And they're basically like, you know, people can't get away with things. Yeah. That's punishment. What yeah. you're describing is punishment. If you use that language, people can't get away with things, that's punishment. You're trying to give them, like, you're trying to do something to even the scales or to get back at them, right? Yeah. That kind of logic is punishment. Being like, hey, you did something and now we don't trust you in this space, so we don't want you to be here until you can demonstrate that you've changed. That's like a natural situational co- consequence, but it's like there's a distinction there. Mm-hmm. So we went into it more length on episode six, but the, the Nexons, they just use consequences to mean punishment basically all the time. Yeah. Or they lump the two together so much that it, it loses all distinction. Yeah. And, okay, so, like, consequences, I think, like, situationally, they, they could actually provide, you know, some protection for people, depending on what the consequence is and what happened, whatever. But, you know, obviously you can make that case. I think um, more commonly the case is made um, that punishment acts as a deterrent. Yeah. Um, and both uh, both the threat of punishment, yeah. right, and also the act of punishment, if you've already committed some kind of offense, like, it'll teach you not to do it again, right? Right. Um, the entire, like, legal system is based on this, yes. this premise, right? Um, it's very common in, like, all human cultures. There's probably something to it, at least, right? Um and, yeah, so, you know, to be very, like, you know, generous to people who love punishment, like, I think that there, there probably is, like, some merit to this idea, right? However, it, it is a very weak argument. There's a bunch of ways in which it breaks down when you examine it more closely, so we're going to get into some of those. Yeah, and also it's like, you know, I think that we can have... 
I think that the desire for punishment is a very natural human desire, you know? But I think that we can have different ideas about whether or not it is ethically a good thing, you know? Correct. Um, I personally do not think that is ethically a good thing, but that's not what this episode is about. Yep. It is about, is it effective? Yeah. And so, basically, um, let's, let's talk about why we don't think that it's a very effective strategy. Basically, there's two reasons. The first is that, you know, we know this in terms of, like, crime and stuff like this, right? We know you're not supposed to steal things. Mm-hmm. It's against the law. Yeah. You could get charged. You're in a lot of trouble. But do people steal things? We do. They do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they do steal things. And so for a lot of people, you know, when trying to decide whether or not to do something that is punishable... There's a little bit of, like, arithmetic that goes into it. Yeah. Which is about weighing out, like, how much you want to do the thing and how likely you are to get caught. Mm-hmm. Right? And so if you can weigh those out, you can be like, is it worth it for me to risk being punished for this because I really want to do the thing and I'm sneaky and I'm good at, like, hiding shit and so I think I'm going to get away with it, you yeah. know? And so I think that this applies more to... um you know, people who are, like, very intentionally and maliciously doing abusive things and who are strategizing about it yeah. and who are trying intentionally to get away with it. Right. One example of this that I can, to make it concrete, you know, is that when I intervene on domestic violence situations on the street, which I've done many, many times, part of the reason that I do it and I am not afraid that the dude is going to assault me is because I know that he doesn't know if he can get away with it. Right. But he knows he can get away with it when he does it to his girlfriend because he has a dynamic set up with her in which he has basically eroded her her sense of self-worth. He has got her dependent on him. And he has created this situation where she believes that it is her responsibility to manage his behavior. Right. That's the logic of domestic violence. And so he's very certain that it is very unlikely for her to go to the police. Right. And or to, to really like to do anything. To do anything yeah. Right? That's the logic of domestic violence. And so he does it and like it's uh the the metaphor that people use with domestic violence is like the frog in the pot with the boiling water. Yeah, yeah. Where like he slowly works it up until now there's a new normal that she has accepted, you know? And so that is a very psychological mechanism, um, that I would argue is like semi like conscious and intentional. In which he knows he can get away with it, and that's why he's doing it. Right. With me, I'm a wild card. I am a random girl who showed up on the street being like, hey, can you take a walk? Like, she's leaving, you yeah. know? Yeah, And he's like, if I assault this woman, I might go to jail. Yeah. Right? For like six years. Because she's random, yeah. and I don't know what to expect about what she's going to do, and so, like, you know, she might press charges against me. And I can tell you I've never been assaulted in those situations. And, like, what that reveals is that there are people who are being very strategic about whether or not they are going to get caught and whether or not they are going to experience the the punishment that is going to be given to them or the consequences that are going to be given to them. And so I think that the same thing happens with cancel culture. Like, I think that there literally can be, you know, as much as we are putting all sorts of random people on blast for all sorts of nonsense on the internet, mm. I also think that real domestic violence is probably happening within these scenes, and those people are not necessarily getting canceled because their victims aren't doing anything. They're not yeah. They're not doing cancel campaigns because they're literally terrified of the, that what will happen to them if they do cancel campaigns or because they are so desperately trying to, um, you know, save the relationship and they believe that there's some way that they can make him stop. Yeah. So... Also the fact that, like, abuse victims typically, like, don't, know or accept that they're being abused. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, 
yeah, so that was the first one that, you know, it it only works, like, in a context in which the person gets caught. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, further, like, a lot of people who commit, like, various, like, acts of violence and stuff, like, if they're not, um, you know, purposefully and, like, maliciously planning them, oftentimes it's because they're fucking out of their heads, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're fucking, like, wasted or they're, like, experiencing some kind of, like, episode or their, like, nervous system is totally dysregulated and they're, like, raging out or something like yeah. that. And in those cases, you're not thinking about the punishment. Exactly. Like, by definition, you know? And if you were, you wouldn't fucking do it, you know? Exactly. Um, and it's, like, a lot of, you know, we call them, like, crimes of passion and stuff, but it's, yeah. like, there's, like, a whole, like, name for it. It's a whole trope. There's plays written about it, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, there's, like, all, there's, like, movies, books, whatever, like, because it happens where human beings our our nervous systems get like completely flooded for whatever reason and then we might act out in ways that we never normally would act out right yeah and in those cases we are not worrying about punishment we're not thinking about punishment we're only thinking about what's in front of us right this is like a thing that happens to people and we know it so in those cases like how is punishment going to deter that no because you're not thinking about it and there's like one there's literal substance some substance abuse shit, right? Where lots of cancellations are about things that people did when they were absolutely wasted, right? So it's like, obviously when people are wasted, I'm not saying that they should do the things that they did, it's still wrong, but they obviously are not going to sit there and calmly think to themselves, hey, if I do this, you know... I might get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble. They're not thinking about that because their prefrontal cortex is fucking not online because they're drunk. Yeah. And the same thing happens. And because they have no inhibitions. Yeah. That's what happens when you're drunk. Yeah. And so, and the same thing happens when you are really, really, like, triggered or, like, in a state of rage or a really huge state of emotional overwhelm, totally dysregulated nervous system, is that, yeah, your prefrontal cortex, which is the part that, like, weighs things out and thinks about the future and, like, sees if something is a good idea, is basically offline. And so, basically, in situations of, you know, people being in a fucked up headspace, it's not a very effective um, deterrent either. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, you know, finally, uh, people who are, like, actually scary, yeah. like, people who are, like, really dangerous people, yeah. don't give a fuck about your cancel campaign. Yeah. And they don't care about your consequences or your punishments because you can't enforce them on someone who's really scary. Yeah, and I mean, we know this because, once again, to take it to, like, domestic violence and stuff like that, a lot of guys who do very serious, like, abusive, violent things they have a large criminal record. Like, they have been in and out of jail, you know? So they have already experienced very severe punishment. They know that they will probably go back to jail for doing this. They do it anyway, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I think that, yeah, like, people can literally not give a fuck. And so those people, especially people who do, like, really serious violent shit, are likely to actually be enraged um, by something as ridiculous as a cancel campaign and they're going to take that out on their target yeah so it's actually dangerous and i think we'll talk a bit more about that in a bit but for these reasons um you know i think at best punishment is a partial deterrent you know yeah i think that is true that people sometimes don't do things because um they don't want to get in trouble for it but i also think that there's lots of situations in which it doesn't act as a deterrent at all because they think they can get away with it, because they're not thinking at all, because they don't fucking care. And so I don't think that it's actually a very strong deterrent. Yeah. And I mean, this is not exactly the the purpose of this episode, but I do want to point something else out to you. 
I think in a lot of a lot of countries with like very like weak rule of law, you mm-hmm. know, um, where you know police are very corrupt and politicians are corrupt and whatever, like regular people notice that sort of like you know murders and rapes and so on in their neighborhood like go unpunished. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas, like, regular people, for no reason, are, like, you know, they're getting, like, shaken down by cops for, like, bribes and stuff like that, right? So their understanding of, like, justice Mm -hmm. is that it's not happening, right? Yeah. And they're afraid of punishment, but not for committing crimes. Right. They're afraid of punishment randomly happening to them. Right. Because the police force is corrupt, right? Yeah. And I think that um, cancel culture creates an identical situation where a lot of people are deterred in the sense that they're very afraid, yeah. you know, but not the people who are committing abuse. Yeah. Um, it's random people who are afraid that like they're um, getting into an argument with their partner will get them excommunicated from their entire life yeah, or and, whatever. And they're rightly, like they're afraid of that for good reason. Yeah. Like rightly so. Yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah, it's, that doesn't have any bearing on whether or not punishment is a, you know, a useful technique, but it, it is, um, an obvious downside to a system of punishment that has, uh, you know, no standardized um, application whatsoever that is yeah. carried out by sort of like random mobs of people, not uh, professionals like in a criminal justice system. Yeah, and um, there's no um, mechanism through which to like test the accuracy of the accusations, which we will get into this more yeah. when we do your... One. Totally. And no way to appeal and so on and so forth, you know? So, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about some more downsides of these strategies beyond their low level of effectiveness. Because yeah. it's like, okay, fine. If you were going to say, these strategies don't work super well, there's lots of holes in them, there's lots of situations in which they fall short or they don't actually do what they say they're going to do, but they're sort of effective, So and they're all we have. Like, I think that's sort of the argument that they would make. It's like, we need to do something, so we, we're going to do this, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe I could be convinced if that if if these, you know, had the slight positive impact and no negative impact, maybe I could be convinced. Yeah. But in fact, there's a lot of negative impacts to these strategies that I actually believe make our situation worse, that actually increase the likelihood of abuse and decrease the likelihood of abusive people changing their behavior. Yeah. So, so let's talk about some of these. So one of them, and I've, we've talked about this many times on the podcast, but basically, you know, when we talk about all these examples of people in 12-step communities who went from being totally sketchy and like assaulting people and robbing people and being awful to the people they love who then completely transformed their lives and are now, you know, like opening and closing the meeting and like babysitting their nephew and like, you know, they're like keys to the church. They're very upstanding and kind and like sponsoring five people. And like, they're just like really, really good people in their communities, really fucking offering a lot. They've changed. They've changed so profoundly and that is possible and it happens. But how does it happen? It happens because those people had resources. They had a huge amount of community support. Mm -hmm. It did not happen when they were stressed out of their mind, not able to go anywhere, banned from all spaces, like being constantly harassed and having no community. That is not the conditions under which people change. People change when they're well-resourced and um, when they have support. That's how people change. They need support. And I think, you know, I know what people would say. I read a post about it actually recently on the internet that basically said... You know, we should support people who have been abusive, but only if they are willing to, like, change their behavior 
on our terms right now, yeah, right? To be accountable. So we should basically um, make this support contingent upon their ability to to start that transformation right now on our terms. Mm -hmm. And this is also not effective, and it's not what's done in 12 steps, right? Mm -hmm. You can be as sketchy as you fucking want coming to the meeting. People are still going to be kind to you. They're still going to give you coffee. They're still going to be like, yo, please get a sponsor. (laughs) Um, They are not going to be like, come back when you're ready, you know? Like, they're going to be like, you got a chair here, you know? Um, Listen and learn. Yeah. Um, So it's like, it's unrealistic to threaten people into changing. You know, people will change when they decide that they are that that it's something that they want for themselves, you know, and sometimes that takes time. And they need people around them who are telling them, "Hey, like you need to change and we believe that you can change and like we're here for you to help you change," you know? Um not people to be like fuck you until you've changed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just <laughs> Just like uh, uh, something to to mention, I recently somebody told me about a cancellation in which the cancelers one of their demands was that um, when the person went to twelve step meetings, they had to like announce that they were like a a, a, a known manipulator or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Honestly, <laughs> people do not understand how fucking twelve steps. And like works. trying to bring that shit into twelve steps is like absolutely terrifying and awful. I know, I know. I'm like, get the fuck away from me with that. Yeah, absolutely fucked. Um, yeah, I mean, also, uh, these strategies, they, they permanently mark people, right? That's part of, like, the, the whole goal of cancellation is to make it so that you can never fucking escape, uh, the mark of being canceled, you know? And obviously, like, very few people would ever admit that that's one of the goals, but that's one of the effects, absolutely, you know? Um, and if you're permanently fucking marked like that, what, like, sincerely, like, please answer me, like, what motivation would you ever have to change? Yeah. Like, if you know that no matter what you do, like you will be treated like a pariah and that no one will ever be like, well, basically you change your behavior. Well done. You know, um, that you will never be like welcomed back into things that people will always like be like, Oh, uh, you know, like 10 years after the thing went down, people will be like, you can't be in our like shitty, like political organization because you, it's come to our attention. It's come to our attention. You know, like, why would you do anything? Why would you fucking bother? Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say, to be very generous, that, like, people do have, like, an inbuilt um, desire to be better versions of themselves. At least many people do, you know. Um, so some people might do it even though, you know. But, like, many people would would find that so incredibly demoralizing yeah. that they would have, like, absolutely no motivation to do the very difficult and lengthy yeah. work of trying to transform yourself into, like, a more trustworthy, safe, and, like, helpful person in the world. Yeah, right? and I think that people have this, like caricature like we've talked about where they think that people who have been abusive are just like evil you know and they don't realize that a lot of people who are acting in abusive ways are like they're in a bad place like a real bad place and they don't feel good they don't feel good about themselves they don't have a lot of hope they're like they might be caught up in like addiction or like a lot of mental health problems and it's like really fucking hard not only to do the work to get out of that but to motivate yourself to actually believe that it's possible to get out of that you know and to believe that you could be different like a lot of people they feel totally stuck and so it really isn't 
motivating at all to be like, hey, even after you do all of this really hard work, you know, and like face your deepest traumas and your deepest fears and like, you know, do like direct amends wherever possible and like all of this really intense work that the transformation takes, like that even after that, we're still going to treat you like you're the worst version of yourself every yeah. day. Yeah. Which is also like part of our critique of accountability processes that we talked about yeah. in, a, in, a, in a previous episode where it's like most of these fucking things like don't have an end. Yeah. You know, there's no, like, point at which you've, like, done the thing. Where you and, like, fucking you're close just, like, the book and you go on. And you're you're welcomed back into the community because the community is fake. It's not yeah. a real thing. Like, there is no, like, the community. Yeah. There's just a bunch of people, you know? And, like, it goes, it's worth repeating. I repeat it constantly and people still seem to not understand that I believe this. But it's, like, I'm not saying that every single person has to welcome this person back. Right. Right? Right. You don't have to. If, if you decide that, like, you know what, this person really fucked me over and I never want to have a relationship with them again even after they've changed. Sure. That's absolutely fine. You are allowed to not have a relationship with any person in the entire world for any reason at all. Yeah. Including and, that you don't like them. And that guy who's now, like, opening AA meetings and, like, has the keys to the church or whatever, like, probably his ex doesn't fucking talk to him. Yeah. And it's fine. Like, you get to decide that. There are some people who, like, decide that they do want to, like, to repair relationships or to, like, you know whatever, have that person in their life again, but that's not always the case and it's totally fine. You don't have to, but what you are, you know, like what we're saying that you actually are not justified in doing is saying, okay, well, I don't want this person in my life, so therefore no one is allowed to be in his life and he's not allowed to have any kind of life to speak of whatsoever, right? So, yeah, and I think, like, just to go back to the marking people thing, I really think it's so important and, like, it's a major concept that I really think the nexus needs to grapple with and that people in general need to grapple with because that whole learning good consent thing of like telling every single person that you once assaulted someone. Yeah. To me, I'm like, that is absolutely horrible. I do not like that at all. You know? Yeah. I think that it is literally permanently defining someone by their past. It makes things so stressful and awful. And it's just, it's, it's punishment. It's like permanently going through like this sordid, horrible part of your past that is literally nothing to do with your life today. And just having to bring that up and put it to the front of every new connection that you're trying to make is awful. And if, if like when I was getting sober and I was coming out of being this insanely sketchy person, you know, like the promise to me was that I could change and that I could have a new life, that I could be someone else, you know, mm-hmm. that I could have a new life. And it doesn't mean I just walk away from the wreckage of my past. It means I deal with it. I make repair. I change in an ongoing and consistent way. I'm responsible for it. But then I get to leave it behind, yeah. you know? Like, I don't have to consistently bring it up. Like, it's the most important thing about me because it's fucking not. It's irrelevant at this point. Yeah. You know, and people yeah. need to be able to like let go of the past and just be someone else now. Totally. And like, if it's relevant, it's relevant. Sometimes maybe there's cases where it's relevant, but it's like, if it's not relevant, it's not relevant. Totally. And like, as an example, I, I've talked about this, I think, on the pod before, but one of my like trademark moves when I was drinking was I would show up at people's houses at like four in the morning, wasted, like blackout drunk, and just be yeah. like, hey. Totally. You know? And, like, it would be, like, some, some like, girl I went on a date with, like, three weeks ago or yeah. something. I would just, like, show up at her apartment, like, yeah. wasted, you know? And be like, what's up? You want to have a drink? And, like, that's, like, scary behavior, yeah. actually. You know what I mean? And, like, if, if somebody um, got in touch with me today and was, like, actually, you did that to me and, like, it really sucked and I feel really, like, it fucking scared me and, like, fuck you, I would be like, I'm so sorry, you know? Um, I would really try to make amends for that, right? Because yeah. that's, like, not an okay thing to do to somebody. It's, like, very fucking crazy behavior, right? Yeah. But I have not done that since fucking 
I got sober, like, ten years ago, you know what I mean? And, like, and it would be fucking bizarre and weird for you at every single time you have a new date. Right. To be like, to be like by the way, there's a possibility that I might show up at your house at four in the morning and scream at you. Like, no, there's not. <laughs> because there isn't. I would never do that. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It's just so... Yeah. I totally relate. Because, like, my be- I always, like, vaguely refer to it as screaming at people on the street. But, like, I cannot explain the level of chaos that I brought into the lives of people around me. Yeah. You know? I was a fucking, like, shitstorm running through everybody's life in the most chaotic ways. And I I was fucking disrespectful, rude, awful. And I hurt a lot of people. But it's like, that kind of behavior is just... You caused harm. Yeah, I caused harm. (laughs) I mean, I literally did cause harm in the true sense of the word. But it's like, I'm not going to do that today. And the fact that I did it in the past has no bearing, you know? And it just sucks. So, anyway, I strongly feel that way. Um, The next reason, the next major downside of these strategies is that it is fear and shame based rather than integrity based. Okay. And so what that means is that like, think about the difference between these two things, right? One version is, look, I'm telling you what's right and wrong. And I'm telling you that you've been wrong. You've been bad and you're fucked up and you shouldn't have done those things. And now you need to do these other things that I'm telling you are the right things to do, you know, Mm. or asking you, Like, what matters to you? Who's the person that you want to be? Right. In your heart of hearts, when you think back to the child that you were, when you think back to the people that you, like, look up to, you know? When you think about your highest self or your best self or the person that you want to be if you didn't have barriers. Like, what matters to you? What are your values? You know? How do you like to be treated? Does it feel good to treat other people like that? You know? Does it make you walk with your head held up high? Does that feel good? Yeah. Like... That kind of motivation coming from an internal place of, like, actually, this is my own integrity. And I'm not doing it because someone's yelling at me. Yeah. I'm doing it because it, it's meaningful to me yeah. to act this way. Because I'm in charge of my life. Yeah. And, like, this is... I'm sorry that I'm bringing this up, but, like, Jay and I just watched this movie with Kevin Spacey <laughs> where he was <laughs> pretending to be an alien. Anyway. k In the movie, like, the guy's, like... The guy who is his, his shrink or whatever... Like, the aliens explaining that that they don't have, like, like laws and a government and everything. <laughs> on gay facts. On gay facts. And, and he's like, well, what do you do? Like, how do you, like, make sure that people know, like, what's right and wrong? And, like, like the alien guy, Kevin Spacey, is like, every living being knows the difference between right and wrong. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry that I'm quoting that. But basically, it's true. <laughs> I can't believe you just quoted gay facts. <laughs> it's literally true. And so, like, what I mean by that is that, like, empathy... We have access to that. Like, we have the ability to think about how our actions affect other people and to empathize with it. And, like, I think that most people, when they are resourced, when they are healthy, when they are doing well, they actually want to act in a way that is respectful to other people. I really believe that. And I believe that we can nurture and encourage that behavior because I think that the desire to dominate, to hurt, and to control other people comes from a very, like, unwell place of, like, not feeling good, you know? Yeah. And wanting to have power over because you're not feeling good in your own self. I think it'd be, it, it can be nurtured over the long term, yeah. And I also think that, like, you know, there, there, there are, like, parts of society where being a violent and dominating person is, like, validated in various ways, mm-hmm. you know? Um, especially, like, yeah, like, in the gutters, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but those are typically not... Yeah, like, spaces in society that are validated by everyone else, right? Like, Mm -hmm. people might be afraid of you, but, like, you're not really respected, you know? Like, the kind of... Actually, we were talking about this the other day. The kind of man who, like, um, you know, I I guess we're talking about men here, but, 
yeah, just bear with me. Like the kind of man who explodes at people in public and is just like this big fucking like mess and is like yelling at people mm-hmm. and like, you know, yelling at his girlfriend in the parking lot and shit. Like, you know, he might have some sort of idea that that's like wrapped up in masculinity for him or whatever. But like other men like look at that and are like, you're fucking failing at being a man. Like you're not supposed to be fucking like screaming at your girlfriend yeah, it's in the parking lot. It's fucking embarrassing. You know yeah. what I mean? And like, yeah, like there's part of masculinity that's about being like powerful and stuff, but like you're basically fucking it up for everyone. Yeah. And like you, you look fucking ridiculous, you know? Yeah. And like you're, you're, you're failing at your duty to like protect the women and whatever, you know what I mean? But like the point, the point of this is that like, I think that for many people, like when they're in that state of their life, that stage of their life, I should say, where they're acting abusively and like hurting people around them and stuff, like they're very aware that they're not fucking respected. They're, yeah. they're feared by some people, but they're not respected. Yeah. You know? And people want to be respected. Totally. People want other people to trust them, think yeah. of them as a good person. Totally. You know, even people who objectively are doing like really fucking terrible things with their life um, will often. Um, point at the ways in which they are good and helpful, you know? And I've encountered this a lot um, in my my previous work, like working with homeless people and stuff, you know, um, there would be people who would come into the shelter and stuff who, uh, you know, work with gangs and they're like selling drugs and like, you know, sometimes doing um, a lot more violent and often horrific things like, like pimping women and stuff like that, human trafficking even, like on a low key kind of level. Um, And, you know, they would be the kind of like, low-level guys if they're, like, showing up in a shelter or whatever, mm-hmm. but they're still involved in, like, shit that, like, by almost any metric is considered, like, very bad to yeah, do, right? very violent. Um, and yet, they will do things like see somebody yelling at his girlfriend and they'll walk over and be like, hey, man, not cool, you know? And yeah. they'll pat themselves on the back for doing something good and, like, yeah. sort of, like, keeping someone safe. And they'll be like, oh, I keep women safe, you yeah. know what I mean? Because people want to feel like they're they're keeping people safe, like they're being helpful, they're being good, you know what I yeah. mean? Even when they're not, right? Um, and that that desire, I think, can be nurtured, can be validated, and you can give people more and more paths in which to do that. Totally. Right? And it it helps them sort of, like, rebuild themselves slowly over time. It takes a long fucking time to, like, unlearn a lot of those behaviors. And sometimes those behaviors will never be completely unlearned, you know? But you can make them less and less frequent. You can make it so that that person has more and more ways to behave in a a trustworthy and, like, helpful manner. And more and more ways to identify when those types of behaviors are coming up and and being... To be able to see where they're coming from. Yeah, Yeah, and to be able to, like, act differently, you know? or to like reel it in when you're starting to lose it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think there's there's two things I want to say. One is that like just what, what you were saying really made me think of 12 Steps with how much at a meeting, you know, we're given the opportunity to be helpful. Yeah. Whether that's like making coffee, putting out chairs, totally. greeting someone at the door. Totally. Like doing those small acts of like kindness for other people and being useful and productive and helping mm-hmm. is like such a fundamental part of 12-step recovery. Yeah. So that was one thing that I was thinking about. And the other thing is just that like, honestly, like abusing people, dominating people, acting in hurtful ways to people is a block to intimacy. Like, it is a block to human connection, you know? People long for human connection, and they're all fucked up, and when they act in these ways, they are actually preventing themselves from being close to people, which I think is, like, ultimately what most people really fucking want, you know? Yeah. They're just fucking traumatized, and they don't know how to do it, or they have a bunch of things in their head that are blocking them from doing it, but I think people want to be close to people. So, ultimately, I really think that, um, you know, helping people to see why making these changes is based in their own values and their own desires and is for their own good is so much more effective in the long term in a sustainable way than um, 
than trying to scare people into doing things. And, like, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a second, but, like, we see this with kids, right? Yeah. We see this with children. Yeah. When you yell at a kid and scare them and tell them it's a bad behavior, like, they know that they're going to get yelled at when they do it, so maybe they don't want to do it because they don't want to be yelled at, but you didn't teach them why the behavior isn't good, Mm -hmm. why it might not be nice. Mm -hmm. And um, you also... You know, you didn't let them learn about the behavior and make their own choice about it. And the next major uh, downside of these strategies is that it can actually increase uh, danger in a domestic violence situation, right? Yeah. Like we talked about before, like somebody who's like really scary and like intense and doesn't mind beating the shit out of somebody for pissing them off, you know, if you like make a fucking like cancel culture like website about them, um, they're just going to kick your ass. Totally. And like they're going to... They're not going to kick anybody's ass at random. They're going to kick the ass of the person that they're abusing. Yeah. Because that's the person that they are, like, fixated on, and that's the person that they are, you know, that they feel most comfortable abusing. Yeah. You know? And so it's just, yeah. Well, I said it in the article that I read at the beginning, but it just makes me roll my eyes so much because I, I just think about, you know, obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious, but I was involved with, like, domestic violence services, you know, when I went through my abusive relationship and the aftermath of it. I was involved with domestic violence services, you know? And, like, one of the things that they do is make you, like, help you to make a safety plan, Mm -hmm. you know? For, like, how do you, you know, decrease the likelihood of being assaulted again and, like, avoid your stalker. I can just imagine, you know? Like, these people are like, cancel culture is for safety. And I'm like, can you imagine a fucking... Putting on a safety plan? Like, domestic violence org being like, okay, so, like, first we'll start the website and, like, we'll put his face on it and, like, we'll share it. Do you have money for a domain name? we'll, we'll, We'll make it viral on social media. It's like, absolutely not. Like, in fact, domestic violence survivors are, um, they are encouraged to, like, lay low. To, like, try not to get his attention, you know? Yeah. In fact, a lawyer advised me, because I was, like, looking at like, uh, basically a restraining order and a lawyer advised me it's not a good idea because they like give the address to the guy or like, I keep saying guy, it doesn't have to be a guy, but like the, the, the stalker gets the address so that they know where not to go, Right. you know? And so like, whatever, it's like, it's not a good idea. And so like, even things like that, that are seen as like tools for safety, it's like, there's actually reasons why it's not a tool for safety. And just the idea that making a website or a series of posts that like humiliate and degrade and like, you know, threaten the guy who is like a violent abuser is going to keep his target safe is like absolutely fucking absurd. So, yeah, and then finally, and importantly, and we've talked about it a lot um, on this podcast, and we're not going to get into it to a huge amount today, but this is a culture that can and is used, can be and it is used to abuse people. Yeah, it's like, if you believe that there's like a class of people out there who all they want to do is like abuse other people, um, why the fuck wouldn't they use this system that you've set up that allows them to just sort of like control and isolate people with no like compunctions? And crowdsource it to the whole internet. Exactly. Like, it's it's a it's a fundamentally unaccountable framework. Built into it is the idea that you are not allowed to question it in any way. Right. And so that is actually, like, a perfect scenario for people who want to abuse people. And we talked about this a lot in other episodes. The one about breakups and cancel culture would be a good one to check out if you want to hear us more, talk more about that. But basically, it's like... I have yet to see people who are extremely pro-cancel culture and who are saying that, you know, I'm an abuse apologist and they care about abuse. Like, they never acknowledge 
the ways in which cancel culture is used to abuse people. Yeah. And I mean abuse literally. Like, when I say that we need to use the word accurately, I mean it. I'm using it accurately. Like, to, um, to control someone, to degrade them, to dehumanize them, to take from them the things that they need to survive yeah. is abusive behavior. Mm-hmm. And so that is abuse. Just because it's being done collectively by, like, a bunch of people on the internet and not one specific person does not mean that it's not abuse. So cancel culture is abusive. And so if we care about abuse, we actually have to oppose cancel culture. Yep. And, you know, I think that if you explained all this to people who um, love cancel culture, they would basically be like, okay, well, what what do you want to do instead? You know, mm-hmm. like, we, okay, so maybe it doesn't work, like, so well, but you want people to just, like, get away with it? You want, like, what, what would we do even, you know? Um, what are you doing about it? And it's like, well, um, yeah, we, we've talked already on the pod, like, a bunch about different things that can be done to try to intervene on abuse or to make it less likely to occur. Um, many of them are, like, very sort of, like, straightforward kinds of things that you would hear from a domestic violence organization, yeah. you know, who do often, like, great work around this kind of thing and never would tell you to cancel anyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so here's a couple of them. Um, one, we were just saying, you know, um, we we would... Uh, encourage people to try to um, build up integrity in the people in their their lives who are acting in fucking sketchy ways, you know? And, like, obviously that's a big job. Um, Maybe, like, you personally don't have to do it, but if you are concerned with this topic and you have the capacity and you have people in your life who are acting in sketchy ways, maybe try not scolding them or putting them on blast or making websites about them, but rather, like, trying to connect with them and finding ways to help them build up their sense of integrity and, and their own ability to determine... Uh, what they want to be doing with their life, the kind of person that they want to be, and the path that they would need to take to get there. Totally, and get them resourced. Like, I think 12-step programs are a great resource for this. If there's any 12-step program that that fits for them, um, a therapist is a good resource. But, like, yeah, basically just approaching people with the idea that, you know, you should want to change for you, not because I'm telling you to, but because, you know, it's your life, and how do you want to spend it? Um... Another is um, basically for the – when we were talking about people being totally out of their minds, right? It's like – it's kind of like a two-pronged approach where it's like, yes, we want people to be thinking about their highest self and their, their principles and their values and they want to be guided by those things and they want to be making the right choices because it, it feels good for them and it's in alignment with their integrity and their principles. But what about like when they're out of their head? What about when they're losing their mind and they're not thinking about their integrity and their principles, right? Because that's mm-hmm. a very real thing. People are not always thinking about their highest self. Sometimes they're having a meltdown, right? And so we also need to have an approach that that resources people and decreases the amount of time when they are out of their fucking minds. <laughs> That's the goal. And so this can look a lot of different ways. For some people, it's around like addiction support and substance use. When people are high and drunk out of their fucking minds, and this is something that harm reduction has to grapple with. People who are high and drunk out of their fucking minds are going to act in harmful ways to other people. Yeah. It's basically an unavoidable part of many people's Drinking and drug use. When I was a street worker, we used to talk about how there isn't really good harm reduction for, like, drinkers, you know? Because it's just, like, you know, you can't give them, like, clean needles or whatever. But we used to half-jokingly, but honestly, like, pretty seriously say that, like, our major form of harm reduction for drinkers was to follow them around and make sure that they didn't fight anyone. (laughs) Totally. Because people who are fucking wasted want to try to start fighting people. It's, like, very common. It's a common thing. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, like, supports around substance use, um, addiction supports 12-step programs. And then also, um, 
nervous system stuff, trauma-informed nervous system stuff, where basically, you know, people don't act like their best selves when they are super fucking triggered and when they are having an emotional meltdown. So we want to resource people. And, and like, I do so much work. A huge part of what I do in my job is educating people about these things, about their nervous systems and about, like, how to tell when you're flying off the rails and how to stop yourself before you fly off the rails. And I think that, like, having really um, extensive and vast education about these things that we try to disseminate as widely as possible to as many people as possible is a huge part of preventing abuse. Yeah. We need to be teaching everybody from the anxious, preoccupied um, queer person who is like hyper fixated on their partner and gets extremely controlling when they're jealous to the like straight dude who has like anger management problems and like screams at his girlfriend when he is triggered after a long day at work, you know, like, it manifests differently, but lots of us, when we are not doing well and when we are triggered, we act in ways that we later regret and that are not in alignment with our values. And so teaching people how to actually work with their nervous systems and to better, you know, act in alignment with their values, you know, to bring them down so that their prefrontal cortex comes back online so that they are not acting out of a fight-flight, like, reaction and they're instead acting out of a more calm, regulated, principled place. Yeah, totally. Um, and on the topic of teaching people this kind of thing, like teaching people about boundaries is really important. We've talked about it like a zillion times before on the pod. Um, getting people to understand what boundaries actually are, that there's something that you enforce for yourself, you know, that you can remove yourself from situations that like are not like cool for you. You know, that's a really important thing. And teaching people about ways to intervene on uh, violence as well. And like know? actual concrete skills around like de-escalation and intervening on violence that is um, unfolding in real time. Yeah, so creating like resources about both of these topics is like a really good thing that people can do. Directing people to resources about yeah. these topics, you know, and uh, you know, volunteering at places or uh, sending money to and funding organizations that are doing work in those departments yeah. is like a, a really good concrete thing that people can do if you really do care about trying to uh, decrease. Yeah, and abuse. we talk a lot more about that in episode six. So if you want to hear us talking about um, intervention um, and boundaries and and. Uh, de-escalation and all that stuff you should listen to episode six and then finally like basically i said it a little bit at the end of the article that i read but like there are many many situations in which people can act in not great ways um that cross other people's boundaries and that hurt them and these can range in in severity and they can um they can also be like very specific in terms of like what caused the situation or like what led to the situation the nexus and cancel culture will very often frame it as this is an inherently bad person and that's why they did it, you know? Yeah. But actually, it tends to be more complicated than that. And different situations, Shocker. they require different responses, you know? And, like, in the article, I was like, you know, somebody who doesn't have good consent skills requires a different response to someone who is, like, violently physically abusing their partner and stalking them. And, like, I really do mean that. In in cancel culture, both of those people would be called abusers and they would be treated exactly the same. Pretty much. But a person who basically, like, initiated sex and, like, did not really read body language or communicate directly about it and was just initiating a bunch of stuff with no awareness of, like, how their partner felt about it, that person will definitely be called a rapist under cancel culture, but, like, that may not be coming from a place of wanting to dominate and control someone. That, that behavior could come from a lot of different things, you know? Yeah. It could come from literal ignorance about consent practices and how to do them well. Yeah. It could also come from feeling a lot of pressure to be the 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 partner that um 
initiates, which mm-hmm. happens a lot to queer women who are having mental breakdowns and don't know what to do and are like, somebody has to be the top here. And then, you know, they're sort of like anxious about it and like rushing through it, yeah. you know, and I've seen cancellations about that. There's lots of reasons why a person might not be practicing great consent skills that are not necessarily about them wanting to sexually violate another person. And so in that case, you know, they need information, skills, tools, you know, um, and that would be helpful. That is what is giving them that is what is going to prevent them from doing that again. You know, not, not telling them that they have to tell every single person they ever met that they did that and not making a website about them. Um, and so that's just a random example, but the point is, is that there are many, many different situations that cancel culture treats all the same. You know, cancel culture is just like, this is a bad person, they're a dangerous person, and they need to be banned from community and warned. Everyone needs to be warned about them indefinitely, and they need to be harassed, etc. And it's like, is that actually, that's such a, like, um, crude way of, like, approaching things? What if we were, like, way more specific and we could actually talk about what specifically happened and then ask why did it happen and then try to address the things so that it doesn't happen again. Like, that is what I want. But we can't do that if we are not allowed to talk about the specifics of abuse. If we are, if we just lump all things under a vague, nebulous umbrella called abuse, and we're not, never allowed to ask any questions about the context or what was going on, we can't actually get people to transform their behaviors because we're not applying appropriate tools. And also, we can't actually have good conversations about prevention on on the side of the victim like what can you do to help keep yourself safer in the future you know like what are choices that you can make that decrease your likelihood of being in a bad situation again you yeah, know yeah. which is also helpful yeah. so yeah so i guess to sum up um we <laughs> we have evaluated um <laughs> what we feel to be the claims of pro cancel culture people in terms of cancel culture helping to prevent or you know, decrease the likelihood of abuse, and we have found their arguments to be somewhat lacking. Yeah. Um, and we posit that uh, perhaps this uh, technique is not working as well as people might hope. Totally. And, like, if anything, like, the main thing I want to leave people with is that if you really do care about abuse and you don't like it and you wish that it wouldn't happen and it upsets you, I'm really encouraging people to be brave and to not let cancel culture people claim the space of opposition to abuse and supporting survivors. It is absolutely bonkers to me that these people who actually are very often advocating for abusive behaviors have loudly proclaimed themselves the voice of survivors and the voice of the anti-abuse movement. You know, we can't let them have that. We actually need to challenge them. And I think that so many people are afraid to challenge them because this is such a loaded issue and they don't want to be misperceived as saying that they don't care about abuse or they don't take it seriously, right? So I think a lot of people, they just sort of cede the ground to these people and say, okay, well, you know, these people care about abuse and they're doing what they think is right. But it's like, do you think what they're doing is right? Right. Does it make sense? Have they justified their behavior? Like, Mm -hmm. is it actually having the effects that they say it is having? Is it hurting people? You know, is it actually um, creating more abuse? So I really, I think people need to think carefully about that. And, you know, if you find that you agree with the things that, that we have said on this episode, then I encourage you to, as much as you feel brave enough to do, to like, to talk about it with people. Yeah. To like, really like take back this topic from the cancel culture crowd because like as a survivor like very much being a survivor of violence is 
fundamentally the most profoundly shaping experience of my life, you know? And it makes me very angry to have people taking that and appropriating it and using it as a justification to abuse other people. Yep. And then calling me an abuse apologist. It's not right. So that's my rant for today. (laughs) Thanks, Clementine, and thank you, listeners. That was our episode for today. Have a good one.